And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've had the great pleasure over the last three years on election nights and debate nights to sit on a CNN panel next to Gloria Borger, the network's chief political analyst, and one of America's great veteran political journalists. I sat down with Gloria the day after the midterms last week to talk about the results, but also to talk about her remarkable career as one of the real pioneers uh, among women in political journalism. Here's that conversation. Gloria Borger, good to see you on a eventful <laughs> week. We're recording this uh, the day after the uh, midterm elections, and I'm going to get to all of that, mm-hmm. the sacking of the attorney general and and all of that news, because there's no rest for the weary. No, there isn't. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about your own journey first, uh, starting in New Rochelle, which, I, as I remember, was where uh, uh, Rob Petrie and Laura Petrie lived in the Dick Van Dyke show. Right, so it's our claim to your fame. quintessential claim to fame. Your quintessential uh, suburban community mm-hmm. in New York. Tell me about tell me about your folks and so New Rochelle. I actually was born in the Bronx. And when my father opened a, a air conditioning television store with his brother, uh, we moved to the s- suburbs. We moved to New Rochelle, New York, but we lived in an apartment building, never, never lived in a house. Uh, my mother was a homemaker, and my father commuted into the city every day. I went to public schools, uh, culminating in the wonderful New Rochelle High School which was a very large high school. I think my graduating class had six or 700 kids, very diverse, and it burned down my senior year. Oh my. Uh, uh, There was an arsonist, actually my junior year, and then my senior year we went to school in trailers. And I actually just went back to New Rochelle High School to speak to the, the students there and it was a phenomenal experience for me because it's now 2,500 kids, all kinds of education uh, from you know kids who end up at Harvard to special vocational training. To, it's just an amazing place. So uh, it was a wonderful place to go to high school. New Rochelle back then was probably not terribly diverse, right? Uh, it, it actually it actually was. It actually was. Uh, it was divided by one road in town, but mm. there. But it actually was a pretty diverse high school, and. Um, uh, my friends were black and white, which for those days, and I'm an old lady, was kind of amazing. And uh, so that's how we that's how we grew up. And uh, there were a lot of private schools around, but we couldn't afford it. And I'm glad I didn't go, actually. Uh, now, was politics uh, discussed in the House? Politics was not a big issue in my house. My parents are Democrats, were Democrats. Uh, and it was just kind of assumed, <laughs> but uh, no, not not really. Issues were discussed. Uh, local issues were discussed. My mother was very involved, but politics per se, not so much. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. You'll be surprised to learn, and so I was I was very involved with the politics of my high school. But but at home, it was sort of much more traditional than the way my kids grew up in Washington, D.C., where politics 
was discussed nonstop. And you, you were the editor of the newspaper. You oh, were... What drew you to that? What drew you I to I don't journalism? know. I think I've always been kind of a gossip, and I like to ask questions. The Huguenot Herald was what it was, and um, and it was uh, we did we put it out. I think every couple of weeks, and so it was it was my great experiment because I loved it so much in high school. I knew, and it was crazy that early on, but I just loved the reporting, um, and I love the writing, and I love causing uh, the faculty to get upset with what we were doing. And so nothing's really changed. Nothing's really yeah, changed. Yeah. And I went to college. I was the editor of my college paper. So I, I kind of stuck with that. And, you know, my husband always says to me, you're so lucky because you knew what you wanted to do from day one. Yeah. I'm not sure I did, but I, I liked it. And I still do. Speaking of diversity, you you uh, brought some to Colgate where you went <laughs> went to school. It's like an all male right. preserve. Right. I was in the very first class of women. I am the oldest living female graduate of Colgate University, um, so I was in the first class of women there. And it what that's that's a a bold move. It was. It, well, it, I loved the school. I was afraid of being a member of the first class. I actually wanted to go to Princeton, but I didn't get in. So Colgate was my second choice, and happily it, I, I ended up there. But it was a very strange thing. You know, when you think back on it, and I've talked to a lot of women at Colgate about it since, and Colgate is now 51% female, um, they prepared for us by putting plastic flowers in the urinals in the men's bathroom, and they gave us irons and ironing boards. <laughs> and I remember my father turning to my mother and saying, I'm not going to leave her here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you Now, uh, the other night we were sitting together on election night, and you saw all of these, I mean, women really were a big part of the story. Women, you know, Mm-hmm. A whole class, new class of women coming mm-hmm. to the house. Uh, there was uh, there uh, n- uh, three or four women elected governors, uh, and women really driving the story. The women voters in the, in particularly in suburban areas, um, and uh, we, you know we met women candidacies generally. Um, so I. I ask you this in the context of, of your own experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you, how do you process it. that? Well, I, I love it. I always think people turn to women when they need the mess cleaned up in many ways. works that way in my house. And uh, I think that now people... Works that way in my house, too. Yeah. People are turning to women because they are different and they are authentic and they provide something something new. And I think that... When you see a hundred women now uh, in Congress, in it's house, yeah. it's very exciting. I mean, I go back long enough to recall when women could not wear pants on the floor of the Senate, when there was no ladies' bathroom yeah. outside the the Senate chamber. I remember standing on the floor of the convention when Jerry Ferraro was nominated for vice president for vice president 84 and getting chills because i thought this is the beginning of something only it really wasn't but but these things never go in a straight line exactly exactly but i remember at that moment thinking this is different this is the beginning of something and being disappointed time and time again and not only in politics obviously but but in every career so so to see uh, this happen in politics 
uh, is really exciting. The, the challenge now is to not judge women by a different standard. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I got a, a, a note, kind of a, an angry note from a friend of mine, very, uh, very powerful uh, woman in business, uh, who said, uh, how can you call it the year of the woman when, you know, two women senators were defeated? But the fact is part of becoming, uh, of integrating women into the political process is that they're going to win and they're also going to lose. And there were, uh, obviously there's a, there'll, there'll be another additional woman senator who come in this year because mm-hmm. of what happened in Arizona, Nevada, mm-hmm. a woman got elected. But um, it would, the, the, the more it becomes uh, not unique, right. I think, is, is, is progress uh, for the country. The thing about these women candidates who came in, so many of them were first-time candidates, first-time politicians. From the military, a lot of them? Yeah. Yeah, they had credentials. This... Uh, Abigail Spanberger mm-hmm. from the CIA. Right. Uh, no, it, it, it was, uh, I have to tell you, uh, I've been brooding about the fact that I think um, in our own little panel last night, there was a rush to sort of um, kind of a rush to judgment about what was going to happen mm-hmm. last night. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be a, a pretty inspiring night from the standpoint 114 million people voted. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these women, and not just these women, but all over the country, these stories of people who stepped up and said, you know what, I'm not going to sit on the couch. I'm going to get involved. Uh, I think, and even these people who lost, you know, Beryl O'Rourke was an inspiring story. He'll be back. He will be, and maybe sooner than we think there's an awful lot of pressure on him uh, to 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 take his act national. You know, I think Donald Trump today in his in his press conference uh, tried to make it seem as if he was just fine with the Democrats uh, taking back the House. No, we hadn't. Yeah, he tried to make it sound that way, but then he, but then he made it clear he wasn't fine. He wasn't fine with well, it. He doesn't want them exercising their oversight. Right, and he threatened to retaliate against them. Yeah. And, of course, now with Jeff Sessions resigning, or being fired, actually, um, they're going to investigate it. So, I thought Ron Klain, uh, my old White mm. House colleague, uh, wrote a, a, a good column in the Post today in which he said he thought Democrats should uh, uh, spend the first 100 days uh, working on legislation to address some of these concerns about health care and other mm-hmm. issues that uh, their constituents voted yep. uh, for them to uh, deal with. And I agree with that, but they may be forced to uh, to act more quickly because right. uh, if it looks like, and it does look like, uh, the president's doing an end run. Well, and, and Nancy Pelosi was very clear. I mean, you know, Immediately, Donald Trump said, I, effectively, I can't work with you if you decide to do your job, which is to oversight. Right. And Nancy Pelosi said, whatever we do, we'll do it the right way and in our own time. And yes. you can be sure it'll be organized and it's going to be, you know, it, it's going to be within the within the rules. And um, so I, I think Ron is right. And I think, and Pelosi pointed out, look, there are things maybe we can work together on, like pre-existing conditions, for example, pharmaceuticals, right. drug prices, infrastructure. infrastructure. Yeah. 
get get those things done because their constituents care about that, about drug prices. Um, but you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes. I don't think Donald Trump can because he um, he he can't compartmentalize. And so and we saw that today. So I think that she will try and do it. But there's no doubt in my mind at some point it's just going to collapse. As long as we're on the subject, what what, what of Pelosi? You know her very, very yeah. well. Mm-hmm. I know her well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I um, there is this conundrum for some of these new members because they campaigned and said they weren't going to mm-hmm. vote for her. Uh, and now they're here. Right. And uh, It's a caucus. It's... It, no one knows who you voted for. <laughs> right. Well, you know the old uh, Mo Udall thing. I, do. I, want, I want to thank the six, the 120 people who committed to vote for me, and the 60 who actually right. did. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's true. But I think a lot of them pledged not to vote for her on the floor of the yes, house. Yes. That's. I mean, tell me about her as a. I look. I think Nancy Pelosi and and David, you know this better than I do because you you went through the healthcare war without Nancy Pelosi. Wouldn't have happened. Right. Wouldn't have happened. Right. So she is an amazing vote counter. She knows how to get people together. She understands. She's transitional. She's seventy eight years old. She gets it. Um, but wouldn't you want her on your side if uh, running if, if you've got to bring generations together yeah. and try and get legislation through at least one or two things yeah. you know how it was with health care she was your guide dog right listen uh her determin the the president's determination was matched only by hers and uh, there was a period of time after Ted Kennedy died and after Democrats lost the special election in Massachusetts when it looked like Health care, health reform was 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 dead, mm-hmm. and um, and she uh, and the president and Harry Reid uh, quietly mapped out a strategy uh, to revive it and pass it, and um, and and she had to work very very hard to get her caucus to to go along with it because they they had to accept a Senate bill that they didn't mm-hmm. want because the Senate was not going to vote again on this. And um, it was, it was uh, I have no, listen, there's no one within those four walls better than her at this process. And she knows that too. And I, uh, but it's the outward facing piece that these, sure. and that's, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be f- interesting to watch how she navigates this and how the caucus navigates this and how trump deals with her because he doesn't deal with women very easily so we'll we'll see how that goes yeah well um rom emmanuel always says about pelosi people uh need to remember she's not a pelosi she's a Mm delisandro she's the son of a baltimore mayor and ward boss Mm -hmm. and i i asked her on my podcast on this podcast once uh, how what did you learn from growing up with your dad? She said, I learned how to count. And and she she knows how to count. She does. She uh, does. And, and how to service the needs of all of her members and understanding what they... Yeah. Uh, I, I, see, I see the need for generational change there. I see the need... I see the problems of the members, but they're going to have a hard time finding someone. Yeah, who's the natural replacement? Right. There isn't any at this it, point. It, well, it was going to be Joe Crowley, and mm. he's uh, gone. Gone. Mm-hmm. So you left Colgate. Uh, you you went on a 
fellowship. Yes, study the British press. That must have been an experience. That that may have prepared you for today's environment. environment. Yeah, I got a a Watson fellowship. Before that, so when I graduated Colgate, I got this fellowship, and um, it was $6,500 if you were single and $8,000 if you were married. So I called my now husband and proposed. (laughs) And I said, well, come on over. Well, we're going to get married. Let's go to London together. And so... Uh, he knows what he's worth, right? And then, uh, so we, so we, well, in today's dollars, yeah, it's today's more. dollars. Yeah. So we went to, uh, so we lived in, we lived in London for a year, and um, it was great. He was working at the time in Buffalo, uh, so we had to make a choice between the Buffalo Courier Express and living in London for a year. That was tough. That's good. Yeah. Well, if he had made the yeah. other decision, yeah. you would have known you had the right. wrong person. Right. And then I, and then I came back, and I had worked at the Washington Star, the now defunct evening yeah. newspaper, which legendary. I loved. Legendary. I worked for them during my summers in college. I worked for the uh, legendary Jack Dermond, yes. who hired me. We should explain because there are people who won't know that uh, Jack Germond was a legend in political journalism yeah. in this country. I mean, there was a core, the boys on the bus mm-hmm. from uh, from the, that famous book in 1972. But there were a bunch of reporters who just traveled the country uh, knocking on doors and maybe the doors of a few saloons. Maybe. And... Uh, <laughs> And, but really had a sense of what was going on. You know, D- David Broder was a, one, one of them, them mm-hmm. from the Washington Post. And I, uh, uh, I was, David Marinus, one of his protégés, uh, uh, told me that he was sitting in a lunchroom after one of these pre- after a presidential election in the, at the Post with him, with Dan Baltz and and David Broder. And Broder just sort of out of nowhere said it was like the February. After the inauguration of the president, Broder said, "Don't you just feel like going up to New Hampshire and knocking on some doors?" What? <laughs> <laughs> but that's that so, was the what, these that and you know what They're, that they that kind of journalism well, is harder to practice today. Well, it is, and that's you know that was my introduction you know to covering politics because Germond hired me and took a shot on this kid. And uh, he, Mary McGrory was yes. was a columnist at the Washington Star. Yeah. And she would travel with us. And Germond was, it was just amazing to work with him because he would, it was at a time when you covered politics, when you went down to the bar at night and the candidate would actually come down and have a drink with you. Yes. And there was such a thing as off the record. Right. Which does not exist anymore. Right. Yeah. And there are no more relationships. And Germond was sort of a master at that and the candidates what stunned me as this young baby reporter was the candidate like whether it was Mondale or whoever it was would ask Germond what he was hearing and was he doing okay yeah. and, what, and and they would they would have conversations not only about policy but about what was going on on the road and it was so it was it was it was amazing to learn from somebody like Germond who who knew the macro politics but also the micro politics. And there weren't a lot of us women at that time. I mean, now I would say political journalism is over half female, if I had to guess. But there weren't a lot. Right. And and for Jack to sort of open the door to a bunch of us, Maureen Dowd was was, a colleague of mine at the Washington Star. Yeah. And so we, we were 
able to learn from these guys, and they were they were terrific to us. They they just couldn't have been better and more welcoming. And um, so it, it was an ex- these experiences kind of got me into political reporting. When I went to the Washington Star, they asked me if I wanted to cover education, and which said, was traditionally where yeah female said, reporters were. <laughs> Right. Shuttled off to right. Would you like to cover education? And I said, not no, not really. And um, they said, well, but that's how you'll get your start. So instead, I covered. I said, I don't really want to cover education. They said, well, the only place we can put you is in Prince George's County, covering the county politics. And I said, great, I'll I'll go there. So I drove forty five minutes every day in a car, a little old car provided by the Washington Star that broke down. And then I covered that. And then I covered the Annapolis legislature. Yeah. And so I got into politics kind of through the the back door until Drummond kind of brought me on the more national scene. Part of that whole idea of shuttling off the, the young female reporter to mm-hmm. the education beat was the fact that these were male preserves. These, I mean, I grew up in a newsroom uh, at a you know about the same time, mm-hmm. and um, so you must have. You I mean we're in the Me Too era now? The yeah. things that the things that uh, that are now, I think, properly unacceptable were pretty commonplace then. Yeah, right? they were, and, and I and you know I I just was chatting with a bunch of women my age about looking back on what we kind of put up with. And it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough never to have been harassed in the way that so many of these women were. But, you know, we all had experiences like my first boss, whom I loved and who's now gone, you know, once told me after I'd been at the Star for um, he was a Metro editor after I'd been at the Star for a while. Well, you know, I only hired you because I thought you had good legs, but you turned out to be OK. And I, I came home that night and I said to my husband, you, but. Whatever. I, I just, we didn't, I just knew that that was sort of the way it was. And looking back, there's a lot of stuff we shouldn't have put up with. But we didn't have numbers. Mm-hmm. We didn't have confidence in, in, in the ways that women do now. When I speak with my younger colleagues, they're much more confident than I was as a young woman uh, because there, there are more of them around. And we didn't have as many women to go to. And we didn't have role models or mentors. That was unheard of. Uh, And so it was just a very, very different environment. And so I'm so glad that women now can talk to each other about things that we never did before. I I had a conversation here with Judy Woodruff Mm -hmm. about her experiences being the weather girl on local TV on her way up to becoming one of the first female White House correspondents. Uh, And you forget, you know. Right. Totally. What those, what those days, Mm -hmm. what those days were like. You also did, you must have done sort of like we all did the sort of the occasional police stuff and the. Did. Covered, covered cops, 5 a.m., Went to a went to a, a scene of a crime and almost had to go out and throw up um, in the hallway. I'll never. And uh, the cops were very nice to me, but yeah, I did it. I did the cop beat. I, so it it was it was it, journalism at newspapers, as you know very well, as an apprentice. Craft, yes. Yeah. And you want to experience it all. And I'm sad that um, we're so segmented now, in even in our digital world. 
people cover certain things yes. and they so but but the 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 way we grew up covering covering writing for a newspaper was you did all kinds of things i mean my editor of the Washington Star, Jim Bellows. Yes, legendary. Legendary, wonderful. Started a daily soap opera in the newspaper, and I was he picked me as one of the writers. We had seven writers. It became um, a book called Federal Triangle, not even remaindered anymore, and we wrote it under a pseudonym called Hardy Mums. One of the writers was uh, Diana McClellan, who used to write The Ear. Do you remember yeah, that? Sure, and yeah. Maureen was so we and we segmented it and we did it anonymously, and it was hilarious. And he had this great idea, so we did that, and we so we did a little bit of everything, and uh, it was just a great experience to be able to do that, not just come in and say I'm gonna, you know. I uh, when I came to the Tribune as uh, right out of college. Uh, I knew a lot about politics then. I had covered it for a local newspaper there. And my city editor was this guy named Bernie Judge, still around, great mentor. And he said, you know, you know everything about politics of this city, probably more than anybody I have, but you don't know how to be a reporter. Mm-hmm. So you're going on nights. And I w- it was the greatest education I could ever have. And I saw a part of life that I never was exposed to. And, uh, you know, it did make me a better reporter. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a great experience. Um, you went on to Newsweek. Mm-hmm. The Star folded. The Star, yes. Well, yes. And I went, well, the Star was bought by um, Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. And Jim Bellows was fired. And um, I didn't like that very much. So Joe Albritton was the owner, and I cried to him in the newsroom saying, how can you fire Jim Bellows? <laughs> Which was probably not a great move. But, um, and I did, go to, I did go to Newsweek. The legendary uh, Mel Elfin hired me, mm-hmm. hired me at Newsweek. And we had an amazing bureau. I mean, that was the, the Newsweek bureau and the, and the craft of writing for a news magazine and reporting for a news magazine was an education in itself because you it was a luxury because you actually had a week right to do a story imagine right, that which is yeah I, I think that that there is there is a great um advantage to that and then um but there's all you know i always needed the deadline to right motivate me but we used to write thursday nights and then it would get sent up to new york and then they would rewrite it yeah. and then but but it was you could have a week of reporting yeah which was so great and yeah. looking back on it what a luxury that was it's it, one of the things that the new modern media environment doesn't permit right and you wonder about the qual i mean people do amazing work under difficult circumstances mm-hmm. and deadlines here but you wonder what, I don't wonder. I know that something's been lost because we've lost a strata of editors who used to read copy and ask the right questions. Right. And we've lost the time for reflection. And, you know, the premium is on speed. Get it online. And, and getting and, – and this is the other thing, which, which – it's getting to know your sources. I mean, I was their chief congressional correspondent. And I would spend my weeks in the, in the lobbies of the chambers pulling members off the floor to talk to them, not on the phone, not by text, but one-on-one, person to person. And I still believe there is nothing that replaces that. And you know how we all do this by shorthand. I'm texting sources all the time. Right. But there's not that connection that you had when you were sitting in the speaker's lobby every day, 
and actually talking to them. And that's how I got to know Dick Cheney so well when he was head of the House Republican Conference. He was the ideas man, which his daughter is now running for that job. Uh, and he was a different man when he was in the when he was in the House, I might add. Yeah. But but members members like to do that and um it was such a great experience and there's no yeah, replacing it big vivid figures mm-hmm. then um including the speaker was tip o'neill probably when yep you were there. he was and he was uh you know he had a daily presser in his little office and um we'd all go in every day at noon and tip would speak to the press Every single day. And he'd make a lot of mistakes. Uh, he threw in the towel once on the tax bill that Ronald Reagan wanted, if you'll recall. And, but I also remember, speaking of being a woman, when I was pregnant, he'd come in every day and he'd pat my belly. And then he'd go, <laughs> and then he'd go sit down at his desk and he'd say, how you doing, darling? You know, and he was so wonderful. I wouldn't have thought twice about that, right? Yeah. But he was a very available speaker. Yeah. And yeah, all that all that's gone. All that all that is completely gone. Um, you went to U.S. News and World Report. I think that's where I uh, probably yeah. first uh, uh, yeah. came across you, and you spent another ten, eleven yeah. years there. Uh, I forget how many. So my my editors from Newsweek ended up uh, running U.S. News, and. Um, and oh no, David Gergen hired me actually <laughs> at U.S. News. Uh, I in between his it, well, Mort Zuckerman many bought, stints in government. Mort Zuckerman bought U.S. Uh, bought U.S. News, and my I had a couple of editors from Newsweek who went over there, and and David Gergen went over there, and they hired me there, and it was, you know, it was great. It was a wonderful place to work. And then when Gergen went to the White House, I took over his column at uh, in at the magazine. So. We were an underdog, but we did we did pretty well. And um, now to think that there were three news magazines, yeah, is stunning. It used to I don't know about for you, but it used to be that I couldn't get through a Sunday night or a Monday without looking at the covers of all three magazines. Right, right. That doesn't exist anymore for right, me. Right. Do you? Yeah. No, no. No. Well, it's kind of an anachronism. It is. It is. Uh, given the modern media template, and then um, and then you. You, you moved over to television or in part-time. as part of that part time. Yeah. So, as yeah, as part of a tra- and that was a long transition into te- full time television. Yeah. But t- talk to me about making that transition from print to TV. To, to TV. So I I think what what happened is that um, I was lucky enough that that CBS was trying to. Uh, bring more women on board and needed contributors. And uh, so I went on Face the Nation a couple of times and Bob Schieffer was nice enough. Eventually, I became sort of his sidekick on Face the Nation for about five or six years. And uh, and a contributor to CBS Evening News, sometimes standing out on the porch of the Hay Adams with Dan Rather <laughs> during Lewinsky, mm-hmm. uh, which was awfully frightening to me. I mean, it was, I was so intimidated by Dan. And um, so I, and I have always thought that it's turned out really strangely because I always thought as I age, well, print will always be there and TV goes away. But it's turned out just the opposite because print isn't always there. I mean, I can write for CNN.com anytime I want, I do. But I never anticipated that 
that the print outlets, and now there's digital, obviously, but the traditional print outlets that I thought would always be there for me went away. Yeah. You know, U.S. News is a magazine, but it's it's a lot about guides, and, and Newsweek is very different, and newspapers are in trouble, and uh, everything else is booming. And how does reporting uh, differ? Here? Not just here. Well, I want to talk about, yeah. about CNN, but yeah. just reporting as a as a, a journalist when you're reporting for TV and you have to think about when, images and when you're well so there's there's different there are two different things because I do a lot of long form for, right. for CNN so there's there's a lot of different ways when you're just reporting for on air you're reporting for the next headline you're you're on your phone while you're sitting on the set we all do it right when you're when you're writing a documentary or when you're writing a 10-minute piece, you're thinking about what your pictures are going to be, which is very different. Which is, you know, how can I weave this story given what I, given the pictures that I have, which I never had to think of as a as a print reporter. I also think, in many ways, when you do interviews, and you know this yourself, when you do an interview for print, is very different from when you do an interview for television. Yeah. And because when you do an interview for television, you're thinking of the next question and how do I make this the architecture of this interview work where there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And when you're doing it for print, it doesn't really matter. Uh, And so it's a very different interviewing is a completely different skill for television than it is for print. And I think more difficult. I think much more difficult because, as you know, it's very difficult to get people to be more honest when the camera's on them. It is. Yeah. No, it's it's hard. Yeah. And you've been at CNN now for Ten since two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the evolution of cable news, for better and worse, yeah. in our. Well, first of all, let me say something. CNN is the most dynamic place I've ever worked. Just look at the day to day, you know, we, or yesterday, we had an election yesterday and today Jeff Sessions is out mm-hmm. and CNN has to be on it every minute. Yeah. So it's it's a very demanding parent. It's very demanding and it's very labor intensive, more than a network where you have 22 minutes in the evening right. or a morning show. You know, CNN is a show 24 seven. And so it demands more stamina. In many ways, as a reporter, it demands you to have a greater depth of sourcing uh, because anything happens. For example, I've been on the Russia reporting team, and that's been great because I've had to develop different kinds of sources and stretch my muscles in different ways. I'm not an intelligence reporter, but mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah, I mean, you, it, it's been it's been an amazing experience. Well, let's just stop right there yeah. for a second because and get back to the the story of the moment. Um, Having covered this investigation mm-hmm. from the beginning, uh, what happens now, do you think? <laughs> well, I don't think it's going to be over tomorrow the way a lot of people do. But I think right now it's in jeopardy. I think the Mueller investigation is in jeopardy. How far along do you think he is? Very far. I think he has probably written a report. Mm-hmm. I think he is in nego- I know he's in negotiations with the president's attorneys. Uh, they've exchanged written answers to questions about collusion, but I think it's still an open question about whether they might want to subpoena the president if he doesn't want to testify in in person. And I think uh, that is still being negotiated. And I don't know if that set Donald Trump off. I have no, you know, I have no idea. I think, um, I think 
Mueller has farmed a lot of stuff out to the Southern District of New York Mm -hmm. and to other places that he cannot... So you think he's been planning for this exigency? Uh, yes. It, it, would, it, it would shock me if he didn't have a plan knowing that Jeff Sessions was going to be fired. I think the big question now is what happens to Rod Rosenstein. And because Rod Rosenstein, who is Jeff Sessions number two, is in charge of the Mueller investigation. So if Mueller were to want to subpoena the president or issue his report, it has to go to Rod Rosenstein and get approved. But no longer because the attorney general won't be recused. Well, that's that's right. And Rod Rosenstein no longer has authority over Mueller. This happened an hour ago. So does Rod Rosenstein stay? Does he what what happens? What happens or have has the entire top of the Justice Department been decapitated? I don't think we, we, this is just unraveling in real time. Do Sessions and Rosenstein now, uh, are they free agents, do you think, to testify before Congress? I, I don't. Can kn- the president invoke e- executive privilege? Well, I don't know. the. I really don't know the answer to that. Let's see what happens with Rosenstein. I mean, so all the interviews that have been done with Mueller, the White House has not invoked privilege on conversations with people who work in the White right. House. Including but, the White House counsel. But they reserve the right to invoke it later. So you could have Mueller. This is going to be a very big issue, and it could be a, a bit of a crisis. Write a report, and you could have the Justice Department redact most of it because the White House says it's privileged, and then have a half report go to Capitol Hill, which will create havoc, particularly now with a Democratic House. And there there would be a fight over that. There would be a fight over privilege. And it could go to the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I just envision this potentially happening. So with all now, we don't know what's happening to Rosenstein. We don't know, you know, whether Whitaker is going to, what's going to happen to him. I mean, he's acting and, and you can do that under a Federal Vacancies Act for 200 days, but it's only temporary. Seems to me Mueller had to know something like this could happen. He's they're too smart, but I don't know what his plan B is. I just I, I don't know. Well, you must know him though. I know. You know what? I did a ten minute piece on him, and he speaks to nobody. So I have interviewed a lot of people who know him really well, but I can't say that I know him other than by his reputation and by the testimony of people who worked with him for years who tell very funny stories about him, which and my favorite of which is that um, we got a couple of them. One is he called Eric Holder at one time and yeah. he, he asked for a demotion. Right. Because he, he wanted, wanted to, to be a trial. He, wa- he wanted to get back on. The, he wanted to get back on the beat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and 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 then somebody who worked with him in private practice. You know, he never stayed in private practice for very long because this person said to me, you know, he'd sit down with his uh, white collar client, and the client would tell him the story, and then Mueller would say, "Well, sounds like you're guilty. You want <laughs> you want to plead," <laughs> and that didn't go over too well. Yeah. So he's always he's always preferred. Uh, to stay in government. I mean, he's a real prosecutor. I heard one from uh, from uh, someone whose brother worked for him yeah. uh, when he was a U.S. attorney, and he would call a meeting at 6 in the morning, call his senior mm. staff together, and he'd always start the meeting off by saying, what have you done for your country today? Oh, really? At yeah. 6 in the morning. Oh, my. You know, he only wears white button-down shirts, yeah. 
And uh, I was told when he had a Christmas party at his house, which was called for six to nine, at nine o'clock he started flipping the lights on and off <laughs> and telling people it was time to leave. Yeah. yeah. No, he's a, I mean, I had a couple of encounters with him, not just in, but sitting in a room when he was briefing the president yeah. on one thing or another. And uh, he was right from central casting. Mm-hmm. And I always say I didn't say a word because it's, he scared the hell out of me. Yeah, I could see that. I could. Re- Everybody who works for him says they call him the boss. You know, when you're going to the boss, it's all business. And he asks you 50 questions. He makes a decision, and then there's the next thing. There's no kibitzing. There's nothing. I do think, don't you, that the election of a Democratic House this week, uh, that it complicates things for Trump because... Uh, they're not going to be eager to see Mueller uh, silenced, curtailed, no. stymied in his in his in his work. No, and I think you know Chuck Schumer today, and that's the Senate side. But they're you know they'd like to pass legislation that guarantees that he can keep his job. But whether you could do that in a lame duck or how that would occur would is not is not quite clear. Uh, there have been, I should point out, lots of Republicans last year who said firing Mueller would be uh, the red line. And, of course, he hasn't fired Mueller. He's fired Sessions. Right. But whether Republicans now still believe that or care about it. And, you know, Mueller in our exit polls last night, Mueller's popularity was underwater. And I'm sure Donald Trump looked at that. It was 46 disapproved to 41 approved. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, Trump may have looked at it. I don't think Mueller probably cares. gives a no, damn. No, not at all. Not uh, at all about it. So, what about the election? And what is? Uh, how do you interpret uh, the results? I, I, I mentioned earlier there was, you know, the early part of the evening mm-hmm. uh, was interpreted as dark from a Democratic standpoint because of some of the early defeats. But mm-hmm. the the fact is that Democrats did take the House. Yeah. One in oh, some House seats in unsuspected places. Oklahoma. Uh, sa- <laughs> South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, two seats in uh, Houston and Dallas. Yeah. Uh, suburban areas surrounding Houston and Dallas. Um, so uh, elected six governors, ousted Scott Walker in yeah. Wisconsin. I think it was a bit. Look, I, look, I. I don't know your, if you would... your second home state senator John Tester, in. Yeah. Uh, despite the president's best efforts, uh, managed to win re-election. Right. Look, I think that it's a huge deal the Democrats took the House, and and I don't know if you would use this word, David. You know more about these things than I do, but I think we're seeing the beginning of a real realignment in American politics, and that the president can go back to the red states all he wants and he's got his base, et cetera. But if you're going to grow that party uh, beyond Trumpism, you can't lose women 60-40. You can't lose independence by 12 points. You just can't. He won independence by four points in 2016. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a big story. And the, and, and the people the Democrats brought in were not the sort of, Republicans like to say it's the wild-eyed progressives. Yeah. These were George H.W. Bush, moderate moderate Republicans, now Democrats, that they brought in. I mean, these were not, these are not raging liberals that they brought into the House of Representatives. Right. These are suburban, moderate Republican districts. So when you talk about a realignment, and the Democratic Party looks very different. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, 
white, uh, suburban, well-educated, wealthier, plus minorities. I mean, white plus minorities who are largely Democratic. And the Republican Party is shriveling into this sort of older demographic. And eventually, you know, you can put off the inevitable only for a certain amount of time, but they've got to find, they've got to find new people. Right. And so what last night showed me is, yes, Donald Trump can win in the places he won in 2016 and do very well. Maybe, maybe. But uh, when you consider the fact that he took, uh, the Republicans took quite a beating in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. in Michigan, uh, lost Walker in Wisconsin. Uh, Pennsylvania. They did better better in... uh, in uh, Ohio, though, Sherrod Brown won uh, re-election there. Uh, those were really the states that, I mean, along Trump. with Florida, that delivered the presidency to Donald Trump. So it is shrinking a little, even in the even in the sort of what he, those three states you were talking about, he, they're not guaranteed. And he does have a great deal of blue-collar support. I think Democrats have to find a way to get that back. Which they, because Donald Trump has done very well with blue collar. Well, support. I think you know it seems to me, and I said this at the time. I probably was sitting right mm-hmm. next to you when I said it that Democrats made a mistake in 2016 by sending this very pronounced message that you know we've got women, we've got young people, yep. we've got minorities, so we don't really need the rest of you. Exactly, and that's why the deplorables thing resonated so poorly out there. And if you tell people they're not needed, they're not part of something, they're going to believe you. Exactly. And it made Donald Trump's mission or his, his, his strategy easier. But it's hard to think of a president, and, and you worked for one, and he, he, who, who wouldn't, after you're elected, go out and try and expand rather that's than the, contract. Uh, that's the, that's or, generally the strategy. Generally the strategy is to tell people who didn't vote for you, here's why you should have voted for me and I'm for you too, because I'm the president of everyone. And Donald Trump just has never done that. And he would only went to places during the campaign where he would get full adulation and knew that he could make a difference and then handed the house to Paul Ryan and then blamed him. Uh, so I think that's who Donald Trump is. And, um, and then today he shamed all these people by name who didn't ask him to campaign for him. in the, And he sort of said, I don't know. Am I happy that they lost? I don't know. Am I happy? Am I sad? <laughs> yeah. These are Republicans. Yeah. What um, do, do you do you talk to him? Trump? No. It's, it's hard for anybody at CNN to speak with the president. Let me ask you about that, mm. because, um, you know, when I was in the White House, CNN was the place that we wanted to be mm-hmm. uh, because CNN had such a broad reach. It wasn't just right. people who liked Obama. It wasn't just people who hated Obama, but there were people who were Independence. independent yeah. and so on. Uh, it seems as if the president's mission has been to partisanize uh, you know, his relationship with CNN so as to... Uh, as to sideline it or try to as a and I know we both work for this that mm-hmm. CNN so I but I, this is a clinical oh, uh, yeah. question uh, that that's a that's a challenge because I know there are a lot of people here who who are very assiduous about what they do mm-hmm. you among them uh, for whom this is an un, 
unsuspect, un, unexpected place to be. It's it's really unusual uh, to be called the enemy of the people and fake news and and um, you know when we started out this campaign because our boss Jeff Zucker had a pre-existing relationship with with Donald Trump because he after all put him in The Apprentice mm-hmm. and made him a star. Uh, so they had a fine relationship. It was fine. And in fact, I believe, thinking back on it, you may remember this too, that CNN came under a lot of criticism for running too many of Trump's oh, without question, live. Yeah. And why are you doing that? And I'd hear from the Bush campaign, why are you giving him all this free media? And they had a point. They actually had a point. I think we probably did run too much of Donald Trump live. But Donald Trump Live was captivating. It was good television. As uh, he knows. As he knows. I mean, that's the thing, you know, uh, that there, uh, there are, uh, you know, elite opinions of Donald Trump that sort of reduce him to a kind of cartoon character. He helps sometimes on that. Mm-hmm. But it kind of, it minimizes who he, I mean, he Absolutely. has a real genius for the modern media environment and understanding it, understanding the symbiotic relationship between him and the news media. And, and, uh, and you know, you saw today, now whether it was his intent or not, I don't know what he, whether he wanted to advance the story or whether he just stepped on it, uh, but he knows that at any moment he can send the news cycle skittering off into uh, another direction and right. that all he has to do is be outrageous enough yeah, and he and he is, and that's why our weeks are so crazy. I mean, we, you can barely remember what happened on Monday on Friday. I yeah. mean, and 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 the, look, politicians, it's it's as old as the ages. Attack the media. I don't know one president who loved the media all the Without time. Without question, right? Yeah. Of course, and with good reason a lot of the time. But well, this it was sort is, of set up that way, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, that's why that's, the, that's why the founding fathers wanted a free it's our press. Job. It's our job to ask tough questions. Right. And, and today at his press conference, the president was not only snippy with us and critical, but he actually accused an African-American reporter of asking a racist question. And he, um, he was dismissive and talked about, you know, everything is the press's fault. It works. I mean, attacking the media works. And it's his tried and true. And if he doesn't have any other particular enemy, this is as good as anything well, else. Well, also, as he told, uh, he told, uh, I think it was Leslie Stahl, not in this interview. Yeah. Was she? Uh, was it she who? Yes. Uh, he she he told her, I, I want to, I want to make sure that people that when you write bad stuff about me, people uh, dismiss it. Right. Uh, and so that's why I, I go after the. The media. The media. But it's hard when he goes after the media and he says, I didn't say that, and it's on tape. Right. You know, that's a, that's a little bit difficult. The relationship with CNN is now very difficult. And, um, you know, after the pipe bombs, and I guess three of them were sent to mm-hmm. two to contributors and one to CNN in Atlanta, uh, I think that it didn't get any better. And I think that I've never worked anywhere that was having an open discussion with the president, discussion is in quotes, uh, discussion with the president about our role as a free and independent press, uh, as we are now. And um, so we're under attack every day and you just, you just do your job. There's just nothing else you can do. It does strain relationships with people who work at the White House. Although I must say, a lot of people 
who have revolved in and out of the White House, who I talk to on a regular basis, understand what's going on. And it doesn't stop them from remaining sources of mine. Mm-hmm. And the president complains about all these fake news and these fake sources. And, of course, <laughs> you know, he's he, there are a lot of people that he knows uh, who are talking. And he talks to the press. You know, he'll call up Maggie Haberman or he'll right. call. Yeah. And he'll say, I don't know her. Well, or of right. course he does. So it's um, he plays that game, too. He's done it his whole life. He used to. Pose as his own PR guy. Yes, John Miller. Yeah, uh, John Barron. And and he started out, you know, doing really well with the press with New York tabloids. He was the star of New York. Mm -hmm. And so I think now this is kind of a whole different ballgame for him. And he doesn't like any criticism, period. When you're president, if you're not criticized, you're not doing anything. What do you think the uh, uh, what do you think this election mean uh, meant relative to 2020? (laughs) Well, look, I think as you were pointing out, the uh, Donald Trump, I mean, the, the fact that Florida is remains for him, maybe, right? Uh, yes, uh, is important. But Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, big states for him may not be available to him. And I think he thinks of everything in terms of 2020. So I do think it has impact. The one thing we haven't talked about, which is, OK, the governors are so important. Yes. Because you need a governor on your side if you're running for president. Right. They have the infrastructure. And then redistricting. Yes. Which is huge. And you you see the state legislatures. I mean, uh, in the Obama years, I think a thousand state legislative seats were lost. I'm not sure all of them were made up last night, but I think a uh, lot of them were. Yeah, there were seven legislative chambers that switched right. from uh, Republicans so to Democrats. So I think that is hugely, we've usually underplayed it because it's only day one, but uh, that's going to have an impact for decades. Mm-hmm. So I think that you don't see it right in front of your eyes right now, but it, it will make it will make a very very big difference, um, and that's good for the Democrats. So I think that it was a hugely consequential election, usually con- consequential. I think emotionally, what we heard from some of our panelists last night, like Van Jones, who was upset. Uh, about Stacey Abrams or Gillum. It was sort of these were the emotional stars of the cycle. And if they didn't win, that 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 van called it heartbreaking, I think. Yeah. But the others. But the but the real story is that the Democrats made amazing headway here and control the House and now have something to say about the agenda. Yeah. Which they did not before. Yeah, not only things to say about the agenda, but also uh, to block Check. Uh, things that uh, that uh, like the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And checks and, so. and balances. Yeah. And in ter- I mean, they can do their job of oversight. That's their job. And so they can start asking questions about what happened in the Puerto Rico hurricane. Right. What, what, what was behind the policy of separating children from their parents right. at the border? Right. These questions can be asked about right. what's going on at the EPA or right, right. and and those things the American public want answers to that uh, uh, what's who is who is lobbying the EPA who's got the top jobs there what are these revolving doors we're hearing about that so I industry working with uh, environmental protection and having too much influence yeah. so I, I think the Democrats will do that I think there's a danger as you know overdoing though. exactly yeah yeah uh, we'll see. So on my way out, I got to ask you 
where do you think we come out on this? When someday Donald Trump will not be president of the United States, mm. he have he ha- he will have been an oversized presence, you know, uh, for better or worse, depending on your point of view. But in our politics, uh, how will our politics have been changed in our country? How will it have been changed as a result of this epic? It's re- you know I, I I don't know the answer. I'm not trying to dodge your question, but I really don't know the answer to that. I like to think that the pendulum in American politics swings, and that after it, it a Don- has, yeah. and after a Donald Trump, it's just it's just like you got Jimmy Carter. You know, after a Donald Trump, you may get somebody who is the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, after P.T. Barnum, maybe you get to somewhere, somewhere more in the middle because the public is tired exhausted, of that. Exhausted. Yeah. Exhausted yeah. by it. And try not to leave the people out that the Democrats, the deplor- the so-called uh, that Hillary's mistake, you know, try not to leave so many people behind and that, and that both parties will learn from it. But I can tell you now the Republican Party is the Trump Party. Oh yeah. There is no other Republican Party, and maybe there'll be a third party. Who knows? But 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 there is no other party. I when I did this documentary on Trump, and I can end with this if you want. That that um, I sat down with Reince Priebus, who was then uh, chair of the RNC, and I asked him. It was before the convention, and I asked him. I said, "Okay, so is this the party of Trump?" And he got. Reince is a very sweet person, yeah. and he doesn't get angry. He right. got really angry at me and said, what do you mean? Is this a party of Trump? We're not the party of any one person. We're the Republican Party. Not sure he'd answer the same way today. Exactly. Yeah. And he got mad at me. And I said, well, he said, no, no, no. We're not the party of Trump. And today, it's the party of Trump. He owns it. He operates it. He believes he saved it in the Senate. Right. And it's about him. And I don't know how long that can last, Uh, But that's what it is right now. We shall see. I look forward to sitting with you and uh, (laughs) many, many more interesting nights in the in the years to come. I have to tell everyone, I supply David Axelrod with his Twizzlers every election night. And we both, by the end of election nights, were sick to our stomachs. But I bring the Twizzlers. You can get a note from my doctor. (laughs) Gloria Borger, great to be with you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.